Welcome to Cato Audio for January 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, which is focused on fiscal and monetary issues, Congressman Barney Frank discusses national security and our bloated military budget. Jerry Jordan challenges the impossible mandate of the Federal Reserve. Carmen Reinhart takes stock of our debt overhang problem. Jerry O'Driscoll talks credit ratings and financial crisis. And Adam Posen discusses the Federal Reserve and asset bubbles. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. It was about a year ago that President Obama stood before a joint session of Congress, gave his State of the Union address, and basically said that this would be a year in which we focused on deficits, bringing down the deficits, said repeatedly, 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 deficit, 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 and we're ending 2010 with essentially a tax deal that makes that quite a bit worse. President Obama also has uh, sponsored a fiscal commission that has provided some grist for discussion about how to deal with the federal budget. I'm talking with Mike Tanner, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Chris Edwards, director of tax policy studies at the Cato Institute. You can read a little more of Chris's work at downsizinggovernment.org and uh, Mike and Chris's stuff at cato.org. Gentlemen, welcome. So what do we get out of this fiscal commission? Well, there's no doubt that federal spending uh, needs to be cut. The United States is heading down the road to economic ruin unless we cut spending. You know, the American public knows that, and they voted for spending cuts during this last election. So President Obama's fiscal commission is a serious report. It came out in December. It had lots of interesting spending cut and reform ideas. So on the good side, the fiscal commission proposed to cut spending in every uh, kind of area of government, defense and non-defense and entitlements. It proposed major tax reforms, eliminating uh, deductions and lowering overall tax rates. So that's all good. And the report seemed to understand, this bipartisan uh, leaders in this commission, seemed to understand that the welfare state as we've known it in recent decades needs to be reformed. We need to cut some of these benefits for the elderly. They did sort of understand that. I mean, that's all good. Unfortunately, it was sort of a centrist, sort of balanced approach to the deficit problem, meaning they would sharply raise taxes as well as cut spending. And you know, frankly, we don't need tax increases. Uh, when the economy recovers, revenues are going to go back up to their normal level of 18 or 19 percent of GDP. So the problem really is on the spending side. Mike Tanner? I think that one of the things the commission did that was really important was they sort of recognized that government cannot grow without end. The current path we're on would lead us to a position where government would consume some 43 percent of GDP by the middle of the century. And they actually tried to put a cap on it to bring it down and say we're going to cap it at about 21, 22% of GDP. That's really a tremendous admission on the part of the Washington establishment that you can't have unending growing government. On the negative side, I think the fact that it, this commission didn't actually cut spending. We hear a lot about the cuts in this, but the fact is that uh, spending would actually increase by about $1.6 trillion over the next 10 years under the budget that they've proposed. It would fall as a percentage of GDP because the economy would grow. But, you know, for all the screaming, they would still come up with a, a budget that's about 22 percent of GDP. Just back under Bill Clinton, we were at 18 percent of GDP, and people were hardly dying in the streets back then. When we talk about federal spending there is a common refrain when I talk to conservatives about how the military needs to be on the table. They say, no, 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 
go cut those entitlements. And it seems like that is a convenient foil because it's very hard to cut entitlements. Military spending is one of the things that, historically speaking, actually can be cut. Well, that's right. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, we dramatically cut defense spending, which is interesting because you remember, you know, Eisenhower talked about the military industrial complex and and everyone knows that the military lobbyists, the companies that make the fighter jets and the like are some of the most powerful lobbies in Washington. And yet, because leaders in both parties in the early 90s wanted to cut defense spending, they were able to. They shrunk the size of the military. They dramatically cut their procurement budget. So we can cut spending, and Congress can cut spending whenever it wants. And so that is a there is a good historical lesson there. It's really, you know, members of Congress, they can cut spending whenever they want, whether it's farm subsidies or entitlements. It's really just a matter of backbone and will. Recently, we've seen cuts in many other countries that have run into fiscal trouble, like France and Britain and Canada. There's no reason why we can't cut spending in this country. Yeah, defense spending is about 21% of federal spending. You can't take a fifth of the budget off the table and then make a serious effort to reduce the deficit. You can't take defense off. You can't take entitlements off. There's no way to simply go in there and say, well, we're going to cut waste, fraud, and abuse and balance the budget. You've got to address it all. Discretionary spending has to be cut. Entitlements have to be cut. Defense has to be cut. One of the points that Chris Preble makes with regard to military spending is that in order to effectively cut the military, you have to rethink largely the purpose of the military. I think that's definitely something that should be applied to all programs that exist within the government is actually fundamentally think about what the actual purpose is, whether the government needs to be doing it at all. Well, that's right. I mean, two of my uh, grand sort of reform themes that members of Congress have to think about are, one, reviving federalism, getting the federal government out of activities that were traditionally state and local. And there are many examples, of course, of that. Education spending, we spend $60 billion a year federally for K-12 education. Well, we've seen that federal involvement in the local schools has not improved test scores. It's strangled local school systems with federal regulations. And here there's an interesting uh, counterexample to the American experience. In Canada, there is no federal Department of Education. Their students get much higher test scores in their public schools. So we don't need a federal Department of Education. So we need to uh, get the federal government out of these local activities. And secondly, we need to privatize and do more privatization. We can privatize the post office. Germany and the Netherlands have privatized their post office. We can privatize Amtrak. We can privatize air traffic control, just like Canada has. Let's get these activities off the federal budget books completely and put them in the private sector where they will be run more efficiently and contribute to economic growth. That's right. We should remember that many of these government programs actually do a positive harm. It's not just that they're unaffordable, and they are unaffordable, but they actually do harm. Government health care programs drive up the cost of health care for all of us and diminish quality. The Social Security system squeezes out private savings and leaves people poorer in retirement than they would be with private retirement programs. The welfare system leaves people dependent on government, diminishes the work effort, increases out-of-wedlock birth, does a host of social harms. So these are programs that we wouldn't want even if we could afford them. As I said earlier, we're on a, currently on a path where the government's going to take 43% of our gross domestic product. Even if we could find a way to pay for it, would we really want that to be the case? On Saturday Night Live, not too long ago, there was a character playing John Boehner who was uh, appearing on the Rachel Maddow show, a phony Rachel Maddow show, and basically said, look, the people of America spoke very clearly on Election Day. They said 
stop the spending, stop the tax hikes. And he was asked to clarify what spending he would cut. He said, well, unfortunately, the American people were not particularly clear on this point. And the Tea Party movement got a big win on Election Day. And but it's it's again, it's just not clear what they as a group, as a disparate group, want to cut. And uh, in Congress now, Paul Ryan has been elevated when Republicans take charge of the House. He will be a key figure in budgeting. But on the flip side of that, Hal Rogers, known to be the Prince of Pork from my home of Kentucky, will be head of the Appropriations Committee. So reconcile that. I think one of the people are, you know, looking ahead and thinking, you know, the big fight in the next few years is going to be Republicans versus Obama. In fact, there's going to be a gigantic battle, I believe, within the Republican Party. You have new members like Senator uh, Rand Paul, who uh, is going to come charging out the gates, I believe, with a big spending cut plan that he's going to push aggressively. Paul Ryan, who's going to be the head of the the, uh, budget committee in the House, he's going to have a big push for budget cuts in the first year, in the first few months. Then you've got the establishment players, the uh, John Boehner, Eric Cantor, who I guess will be number two in the House, and then on the Senate side, Mitch McConnell. These folks really don't seem to get it. They don't seem to understand that you need to cut more than just earmarks and waste and this sort of thing. We really need to cut the meat from the federal government, not just the fat. And, you know, it's interesting. Mainstream reporters have asked folks like McConnell, Boehner, and Cantor repeatedly in recent months, well, what would you cut? And as far as I can tell, there's only been two answers so far. Mr. Boehner says he would cut congressional office budgets by 5%, you know, save him a few million dollars, I suppose. And they say they want to freeze federal uh, government worker salaries, which is fine. It would save a few billion dollars. But none of the establishment Republican leaders has actually seemed to sit down with a budget, figured out exactly what they want the federal government to do and what we can do without. And so they're going to be pressed for major budget cuts next year, and it'll be interesting to see how they respond. Mike Tanner? Yeah, it's actually even even worse than not proposing cuts, which you've actually had was during the Obamacare debate, Republicans running around complaining that the Democrats were daring to cut Medicare. You saw Newt Gingrich, who wants to be president, uh, out there sounding like Nancy Pelosi saying that the uh, deficit commission was scaring seniors by implying we couldn't pay for all our Social Security benefits in the future. These are folks who seem to fundamentally not get it. Now, on the plus side, you have a vast grassroots movement to cut spending now, and they do have power. They forced Mitch McConnell, for example, to back down and change his position on earmarks, something I never thought I would see is one of the grand porkmeisters of Congress, like Senator McConnell, saying that he was now for an earmarks ban. If that can happen, the next thing can be turned around. One other issue here is just how the tax deal that uh, recently passed through Congress This left businesses in a situation where they were two weeks from their tax burden changing, being unsure whether or not that was going to occur. They've extended these tax rates for a couple of years. What does it mean when you have a government that can't come up with a credible commitment to entrepreneurs and individuals, families that their tax rates are effectively guaranteed. What does that do? Well, you know, I think that the grassroots uprising uh, that we saw during this uh, last election 
focus on two things. One is just the overspending in Washington, the giant deficits. But the other is just the horrible process we've seen in Congress uh, over the last year or two, the ramming through the health care bill, the recently the waiting till the very last minute to extend these tax breaks. And then uh, the Democrats in the Senate trying to ram through a giant omnibus bill in December 2010 loaded with 6,000 earmarks. The process that Congress operates under is just, it's abhorrent. With the tax rates, of course, it's crazy that uh, small businesses who would be affected by the extension of all these Bush tax cuts, you know, the 15 or more small businesses, um, they obviously, they can't plan ahead. I mean, businesses, if they're going to buy a new piece of equipment or build a new factory, they need to know, you know, for years in advance what tax rate they're going to face, else they won't invest because it'll be too risky. But the process is maybe beginning to change because that omnibus spending bill went down. Once again, grassroots outrage. People come in, they force, particularly the Republican appropriators who originally had signed on to this deal, to back down. So, again, as long as there's grassroots pressure stays on, we might actually see some change in Washington. At downsizinggovernment.org, Chris Edwards, you and Tad DeHaven and others have put together a budget plan. I believe uh, Rand Paul has made reference to some of your work in saying these are the things I would support while... I have to say, not naming a lot of things that you're talking about uh, when he does that. So what is within your budget plan? And give us, first of all, just a big picture approach of what it means. Well, a lot of groups in town, including the uh, and Obama's fiscal commission, have come out with plans on how to deal with the deficit. I thought the world needed a plan to deal with the deficit and balance the budget without raising taxes. So the basic mathematics of it is this. If you extend all the Bush tax cuts, you extend the current relief from the alternative minimum tax, Federal revenues will be around, it'll rise up to about 18.5% of GDP by 2020. So revenues are at their historical norm levels. Well, Obama has spending currently at 25% of GDP. So we have this big gap between revenues and spending. And the basic math is is that currently federal debt is exploding in size. Uh, Debt is going to be up over 100% of GDP within a few years. We need to reduce deficits to about 3% of GDP in order to stabilize debt. So with revenues at 18.5, you add three points on, you get to 21.5%. We need to cut spending to at least 21.5%, else debt keeps exploding and we're heading toward a Greek-style crisis. So in my plan, I've got a trillion dollars in cuts by 2020. So I would reduce spending in 2020 by about one-fifth. And it seems to me, you know, Congress should be able to do that. If we phase in these cuts over 10 years, we certainly should be able to reduce spending in 10 years by about 20%. And that would balance the budget. And as Mike pointed out, you know, spending under President Clinton in his last few years was about 18% of GDP. I'm suggesting is let's get spending back to the Clinton era levels and we would balance the budget, even start running surpluses. And so I propose a bunch of detailed cuts. I go through the budget line by line and cut education and cut all kinds of other poorly performing programs and programs that really aren't constitutionally a federal responsibilities. And you can balance the budget within 10 years, really with not too much sweat. Mike Tanner, do we need some sort of grand bargain here during the 86 tax reform? John Sample's details in his book, there was a broad-based tax reform, but Ronald Reagan was able to get uh, Democrats to hop on by, dare we say, eliminating a bunch of uh, tax loopholes. Well, there are distortions in the tax code that should be eliminated that are bad things, ethanol subsidies and all sorts of special interest pleading in the tax code that are simply bad economic and bad tax policy. And any tax reform we do should eliminate them. 
but it should be done to make the tax code more efficient, not as a revenue-raising mechanism so that the government has more money to spend. I mean, just because we've been through the, we're having sort of Clinton nostalgia here, because we've been through two of the most profligate presidents of modern times, and we're beginning to think of that as the new normal. The reality is we can go back to Clinton era spending levels or something close to that and not need those sorts of new taxes that people keep talking about. Chris Edwards, what do you think about a grand bargain putting together some sort of giant deal that uh, can sort of bring everybody along? Well, the problem with the experience with these grand deals, and there's a whole bunch of them during the 1980s, Ronald Reagan was, you know, promised two or three dollars of spending cuts for every dollar of tax increases he agreed to. The same thing infamously happened in 1990 with George H.W. Bush was promised $3 in spending cuts for every dollar in tax hikes. We get the tax hikes, the spending cuts never seem to pan out. So I'm very suspicious of grand bargains. I think Republicans ought to keep pushing for spending cuts. They ought to pick, say, a dozen of the poorest performing and most damaging federal programs like uh, education spending and push on them hard and hope that, uh, you know, if if we have this discussion for the next two years and we get a more pro-market president after 2012, then there is a chance that we can make some of these spending cuts. But bottom line here for both of you gentlemen is you're suggesting that this new Congress come in and the the people who care about spending issues should be pushing to eliminate rather than nibble around the edges. That's right. We have to have a discussion about particular spending cuts before we can cut. So again, I think I hope Republicans pick out some programs that we want to privatize, we want to give back to state governments that we want to terminate and ha- start a national discussion about them. You know, when we reformed welfare in 1996, as Mike knows, it didn't come out of uh, the thin air. We'd had a national discussion about the damage of welfare programs for a decade or more previously. So Republicans have to tee up these programs and discuss them before we're going to be able to cut them. And Mike Tanner, right now, it just seems like uh, the only person, at least, who has really been doing, setting up that kind of discussion is Paul Ryan. Yeah, Paul Ryan, uh, I think, has uh, really gone out on a limb in his willingness to address spending across the board, including the entitlement programs, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. He has not had a whole lot of support from the Republican leadership on this. We'll have to see if they get behind him. But what Chris said is absolutely right. We'd have to have a discussion about the size, scope, power of government and whether these programs are doing any good. Because if these programs are doing wonderful things, then we probably should find a way to fund them. I can't think what those programs might be, but if there are some, then, then fund them. But if these programs are doing bad things, if they're hurting the economy and hurting people, we should get rid of them no matter how affordable they are. All right, gentlemen, we will leave it there. Mike Tanner, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, and Chris Edwards, Director of Tax Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more details about uh, the plan that Chris and others have put together at downsizinggovernment.org. And, of course, uh, the normal cutting of government stuff you can find at cato.org. In the financial crisis, the United States effectively took a huge amount of private debt and turned it into even more government debt. Carmen Reinhardt, co-author of the book This Time is Different, explains that while blaming the Federal Reserve is popular, the role of fiscal policy in financial crisis should not be understated. She spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference in November. The big point I'd like to make is that our problem here in the United States and elsewhere is a fiscal problem. It is a debt overhang problem of biblical proportions. And if you will allow me, the 
prototype of a financial crisis. I've looked at many financial crises in my work over the course of many years, and the prototype is a financial innovation or liberalization occurs. This leads to a boom in borrowing. And during that boom period where economic activity is strong, where credit is ample, asset prices boom. And during that period is actually where monetary policy could sink teeth in to prevent the leverage problem. I concur very much with what was said, that the leverage problem is the essential problem more than the asset prices. So that I would characterize that first leg as a surge in private borrowing. Surge in private borrowing, the crisis occurs. As the crisis occurs, fiscal finances deteriorate markedly, irrespective of whether you have bailouts or whether you have stimulus packages. Revenues suffer a great deal. Fiscal finances deteriorate. And they also deteriorate because what were private debts before the crisis start becoming public debts after the crisis, and the government's balance sheet begins to expand at a dramatic rate. Nowhere more is that more evident than in Ireland, which was a country that had very, by any metric, international standard historically, had very modest government debt to GDP, had very solid footing in its fiscal finances, and now we're looking at 30% deficits to GDP, which are pretty unheard of for that country, certainly and large by any historic metric. So we go from a surge in debt that is predominantly private to a surge in debt that is predominantly public. And now we just have the aftermath of a surge in debt. And so the question of monetary policy, you know, I'm married to a former central banker and so on, but without it, due respect, monetary policy is really a second-tier problem here relative to the massive debt overhang issue that we are facing. And the question is, of course, when you have a big debt overhang, historically, it has been dealt by three ways. One is plain good luck, and you grow your way out of it. Good luck. That outcome is rare. The second is you deal with the debt problem through a combination of debt restructuring, if not outright default, and fiscal austerity. That is not pretty. In effect, none of the outcomes except the low probability growth one are pretty. Or you indirectly use very accommodative monetary policy to inflate away part of the debt liabilities which was also very effectively done, I may add, in the aftermath of World War II in not just the United States, but the UK, which had debt-to-GDP ratios of over 230%. So what did Vincent and I do in this paper? Vincent Reinhardt and I, to take a summary of our policy stance, we would say that as far as targets, asset prices are something that should be watched, but that the real killer, the real emphasis of policy, should be on leverage, debt cycles. Debt cycles are the constant recurring feature of financial crises. And that is what gets us into trouble and with a long, dark aftermath. Now, instruments of monetary policy, and we will argue this in the second 
and almost last part of my presentation, which is there is the issue of short-term interest rates as being the wherewithal of monetary policy. And we basically want to get too much for too little. This is a common problem. You know, you want to have too few instruments for too many targets. And I think the basic message that we would suggest is that if monetary policy is going to be used towards crisis prevention, looking beyond short-term interest rates and being very old-fashioned, I mean the old dead things like margin requirements that haven't really been used counter-cyclically, and we can call them what we want, but any measures that quantitatively also puts, and I use the term deliberately, quantitatively breaks, uh, surges in private borrowing are also to be looked at very seriously. If we're not going to reexamine the kind of monetary policy under the broader mandate of financial stability at a time right after crisis, if we can't re-examine that now and say, okay, beyond the control of short-term interest rates, that's great and fine. But as I will argue later, short-term interest rates only do so much. You need to look closely at other instruments that are more directly connected to cycles in lending. Not every boom is followed by a bust, but in some people's eyes, the Federal Reserve should be able to divine bubbles while they're happening and stop them. Adam Posen, an external member of the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England, says detecting asset bubbles and credibly attacking them with monetary policy is, well, complicated, if not flat-out impossible. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference in November. What I want to challenge today is the validity of this idea that monetary policymakers can correctly identify asset price bubbles and respond to them preemptively, or at least ahead of time. Now, this is something where monetary policy makers, a number of them who even used to be skeptical, seem to switch their positions. So if you go back two years ago to this conference, Don Cohn gave a speech here in which he explicitly said, well, I used to think I couldn't identify bubbles, but now I realize you probably can. And this actually is an example of senior policymakers shifting on this position. That is wrong. Or rather, it is wrong to do. I realize it's a lot of fun for central bankers to channel the late Justice Potter Stewart and say, I know obscene asset prices when I see them, but I don't think that's the way to make policy. So what I'm going to do, and this is based on joint work in progress I'm doing with two people at the Bank of England, Thomas Hellebrandt and Neil Meads, and again, the detailed data and all that will be out with the journal in due course. I'm just going to go through some basic facts about booms and busts as we've been able to identify them and point out that the record is much more complicated than people think. And in light of these patterns, it is a very daunting thing to get the call right that when it's time to pop an asset price bubble and when you know an asset price bubble or boom is going on. Now, I want to add that this isn't because I'm convinced that financial markets get prices right all the time. That's not my concern. And nor is it because I don't want central bankers to ever make judgments. I tend to be more on the rule side than the discretion side than a lot of central bankers, but there's certainly room for judgment. The issue of ignorance here is specific to the nature of asset booms and busts, that we simply do not have enough good information in real time to respond. So the first point I want to make is some booms are different. Now, everybody's riffing on Carmen and Ken Rogoff's 
classic book title. It's my turn to do that. So let me talk about a bit the diversity of various different types of bubbles. It turns out that some things that are taken for granted about booms and busts are not true. So it helps to try to have some sort of objective record, at least retrospectively, of what were the busts and the booms so you can try then to do research on it. So my co-authors and I went out and we took some data sets and we essentially took two different methods for identifying asset price booms and busts. So one follows Michael Bordeaux and Olivier Jean and we said, okay, look at sustained deviations from moving averages of growth rates. Another one following Charles Goodhart and Boris Hoffman and others. You do a fancier econometric thing and you use a Hodrick Prescott filter and you estimate trends in asset price movements. Whatever. I, I'm happy to answer technical questions, so that's not the point today. I'm very glad to be in an auditorium with no PowerPoint screen. It's all very nice. So what we do is we take 17 advanced economies, go back to the early 70s to the present, include the recent times, and look at residential prices, real estate prices, equity prices, identify periods of booms and busts. We come up with two separate lists. Lists are not identical, but they catch, obviously, overlapping. Both of them think there was a boom in Japan in the late 80s, for example. And so the first thing that leaps out at you is if you just do the simple descriptive statistics, looking at these lists, is that not every boom is followed by a bust, and not every boom is followed by a crash. So for example, we identified using one method, the growth rate method, 42 real estate booms and 50 equity booms over this period among these countries. Of these, only 16 of the real estate booms were followed by a bust within two years, and only 12 out of 50 of the equity booms were followed by a bust, a crash in prices over two years. In fact, if you use the other method, you get similar results. You only get equity busts, for example, following booms in 13 out of 51 cases. Now, as a policymaker, you may not care about equity booms and busts per se, so maybe you care about recessions. Turns out you can do the same exercise. It is roughly a quarter or less of cases. It depends specifically which list you look at, whether you look at real estate or whether you look at equity prices. But it never really exceeds a quarter of cases in which even long sustained large equity price or real estate booms are followed by a recession or are followed by an asset price bust. Now, in other words, what goes up need not come down when you're talking about asset prices. Now, for policymaking, this is a very simple point, but it's actually very profound. It means if you target asset prices literally, and you say, I'm going to keep asset prices from going up, I'm going to respond when there seems to be an excessive boom in asset prices, you're going to be forced to cut off three booms that would not do any harm, and inarguably, at least in equity boom cases, sometimes do some good for every one that you preempt. Moreover, as Brad Long has argued, as Rick Mishkin has argued, as I've argued, and I gather Larry White's going to argue, you know, there are differences in some of these booms. Some of these booms are associated with technological changes. Think of Greenspan and the IT boom in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. These are not things you want to casually cut off. So if you're going to do this, you need a lot more information than you currently have to tell you which of these booms are the good ones or the bad ones. You can't just do it on prices alone. Now you can say, well, no one was going to just do it on prices alone. But actually, if you follow the discussion in central banks and the people coming out of the BIS and a lot of the proposals, it was proposed essentially that you do it on asset prices alone. And that is not a straw man, and it is something to avoid. 
But complicating matters further is just the matter of timing. Again, we have these periods, these, these episodes we identified, so we're able to talk about how long they last, how much appreciation you have in each of these periods. And it turns out that on average, equity booms, absent central bank intervention, generally run about two years. And real estate booms generally run about three years. Now, real estate booms have a much longer tail. Both booms and busts, there tends to be a distribution. There are some that go on forever. Think of the German real estate bust of the 90s post-reunification that goes on for 10 years. But more than half of each type of boom and bust is over in two to three years. Now, in our mechanical statistical method, it takes you four quarters just to figure out that you've got a sustained asset price boom. You could say, well, the central bankers are going to be much more clever and they're not going to wait around for that. I think that's a false hope. I think it would, in fact, be the very opposite of Milton Friedman's dictum that you don't over-fine-tune the economy with monetary policy if you wait only two to three quarters and say, I don't like the looks of that stock market, I'm going to raise rates. So by the time you wait four quarters to decide you're in the midst of a boom, and then it takes you a little while to raise the rates enough to have the effect you want, the boom, more than 50% of the time, would already have been over. So in practical terms, this whole thing just doesn't make any sense. Moreover, if you're really a, a leaning against the wind advocate, you can say, well, maybe you're right. Maybe if we did that, we'd be chasing our tail. But in reality, the point is you make a commitment that you're going to pop asset price bubbles, and that deters this behavior in the first place, and you don't have to do this. Now, I'm not quite the macroeconomic historian that Charlie or Carmen are, but I know a little bit about this. The last 40 years of monetary policymaking is littered with the corpses of credible central bank commitments <laughs> and their ability to influence private sector behavior, let us say. And so if you want to build in place a rule, something like more like an exchange rate peg that says you're going to intervene, then it has to be simple and dumb usually. And that's not going to work very well either. Now, it could be and this is something I'm investigating, that booms that are particularly long are the particularly dangerous ones. And you may want to intervene when you see a boom going on too long. That's worth thinking about. But that's a very different kind of attitude for policy to take than this preemptive lean against the wind when you first see it. The financial crisis was driven by bad information, and credit rating agencies played a key role in feeding the housing bubble. But the information was wrong, very wrong. Jerry O'Driscoll, senior fellow at the Cato Institute and former vice president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, discussed credit ratings at Cato's monetary conference in November. We've got all sorts of informations on which market economies rely that have to be tolerably accurate. Not perfect, but tolerably accurate, not systematically inaccurate. So now we have prices and accountancy going awry. The next is a familiar story, the credit rating agencies. The story, I think we all know, it's the why. And I'm not convinced that we've got the why yet. But credit rating firms did once operate in competitive markets, and their wealth depended, at least in part, on their reputation. That is, the capital value of a credit rating firm is largely its reputation. They now operate, however, as government-mandated oligopolies. In 1975, the SEC implemented the nationally recognized rating organization category. Money managers, money market funds, and others had to make use of the ratings of the three agencies, Standard & Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch. Then the Credit Rating Reform Act of 2006 tightened their grip on the market. 
Ed Kane has argued that, in effect, the Securities and Exchange Commission delegated to the credit rating agencies supervision over securitization. Instead of relying solely on profits from competitively supplied services, the agencies earned rents from shared monopoly power. Whether this institutional change alone can explain the massive grade inflation for mortgage-backed securities remains a subject of debate, but certainly the inflated credit ratings of mortgage-backed securities helped facilitate the housing bubble. Now, after I wrote, or at the very end, and I inserted a little notation on this in the paper, I discovered that this process had actually begun in the 1930s with bank regulators requiring that national banks, and then eventually all banks, use credit rating agencies. But actually, people knew what the bias was, and they worked around the bias. They had evolved a system for working around the bias, which institutionally was forgotten and lost. And so when this thing happened and just went through, the markets weren't doing what they were doing in the 30s to discount the bias. Basically, what the markets did in the 30s is they averaged the ratings. And the average of the ratings was a better predictor than any one of the ratings. Okay, so actors need to rely on information transmitted by price and non-price signals. Those information flows are necessary conditions for achieving plan compatibility, particularly among intertemporal plan compatibility and particularly in our new global economy. In the housing boom, prices were distorted by the effects of monetary policy on interest rates. We now have an accounting profession whose goal is adherence to rules rather than truth-telling. There is an overarching principle in accounting that accounting statements must fairly and accurately portray the financial position of a company. In practice, however, the adherence to rules immunizes accountants from legal consequences of their bad opinions. And we have a credit rating process that, for whatever reason, became positively giddy in its assessment of housing-rated securities. It's now purely formal. Certain institutions have to use these credit rating agencies. But if you talk to people, they're doing their own credit rating because nobody believes this stuff anymore. The market's mechanisms for conveying information about asset values, company profits, and credit risk cease to convey accurate information. Instead, they report inflated values for assets and the value of firms owning such assets. Plus, they understated the risk of those assets. Distorted prices, misleading accounting, and inflated credit ratings produced what I described in a piece I wrote for the Wall Street Journal as an economy of liars. We all just started lying to each other. Properly understanding national security in an age of terrorism means understanding where military spending is useful and where it isn't. Democratic Congressman Barney Frank says that amid large deficits, a careful discussion of what the military does and what it should do is in order. Frank helped assemble the Sustainable Defense Task Force, on which two Cato scholars have worked. Frank spoke at the Cato Institute in November. If I were to ban anything, I would ban the use of metaphors from discussions of public <laughs> policy, particularly in national security. I, I mean, I, yes, Korea, if you look at it on a map, resembles a dagger pointed at Japan. We say the back of Japan. Why the part of Japan that faces Asia is the back, I think, is a little ethnocentric for us. But I don't care what shape Korea is. No one's going to be able to pick it up and stick it in Japan. So that notion that it's a dagger pointed at the back of Japan is really quite irrelevant. But people start debating that. I mean, the domino theory was obviously the greatest example of metaphor getting people in, in uh, trouble. But one of the metaphors that misleads people is when we talk about fat. 
because there was this notion implicitly that fat in government is layered and you can simply slice it off. In fact, if you want to stick with the metaphor, it's deeply marbled. And um, that doesn't make it a good thing if it's in excess, but it's harder to get rid of. So yes, I'm all for the efficiencies. And I hope now we will be able to get some. There is, of course, one obstacle to the efficiency, and that is my colleagues, the fight for it being in my own district. And there's a subset of that which is troubling intellectually on the right, because when we start talking about debates, people who will tell me that highway building and hiring more police officers and firefighters adds nothing to economic activity do believe that uh, military spending somehow does. There is a, uh, a subset of Keynesianism that's alive and well in the conservative parts of Congress. It's uh, militarized Keynesianism, that the government spending achieves nothing in the economy unless it's for weapons, which, of course, are not to be used. So the argument might be the other way. But, <laughs> but the basic point is this. I am all for those kinds of efforts. But what the Sustainable Defense Task Force did, and I'm delighted, and what Chris and Ben did particularly, was to go beyond the notion that we can do more efficiently and less expensively what we are now doing, and to say we've got to stop doing what we are trying to do, and not only what we are trying to do, but we often do badly. And we do it badly not because we are inept, but because it is very hard for a rich and powerful country to intervene in a society which has a whole lot of problems and make it into a much better society. We know how with weapons to stop bad people from doing bad things. We do not know how with the military, how to get into a society and make people do good things in a non-military way. I say that because obviously we're talking about two levels here. One is we need to redefine what genuine national security is. I have another uh, linguistic tick, if I could make the rules. People take a word that has positive associations and they expand its meaning so they can pick up those positive associations in areas where it really shouldn't happen. I think we should have this rule. Every word should mean as little as possible. And for every phenomenon, there should be a new word. I mean, national security means that no one's going to come and shoot us or blow us up. I am sorry that people die of illnesses, and I want to spend money to protect babies. But it's not a matter of our national security. And it fuzzes it up to say so. I think we need to define national security more narrowly and say, okay, what do we need to do to protect our national security? Now, that includes, obviously, a lot of energy against terrorism. The part about terrorism, though, is that it is, A, much harder to fight in some ways than a uh, conventional military approach, but B, less expensive. I mean, I wish nuclear submarines defeated terrorists, because we have many, many, many more than they have. But <laughs> nuclear submarines don't help us against terrorists, and these things get all fuzzed together. So first of all, we have to redefine national security in a hard-edged way. Now, redefining national security in that very specific way doesn't rule out doing things with our forces that are more humanitarian in purpose. There's a philosophical argument there. I guess Ron and others would argue, no, if you believe in a very limited government, the government's there to protect people, and if people want to aid the people of Haiti who are facing cholera, et cetera, that can be done through voluntary efforts but you don't do it through the coercive mechanisms of government. I understand that argument. I don't agree with it entirely. But I do think we ought to be clear what, that expanding the concept of national security to cover every good impulse we have does not serve things well. As to doing humanitarian things, I think there is some justification for that. I do think coming to the aid of people who are under assault, look, it is conceivable that there would be people 
threatened with a terrible set of events, uh, some sort of uh, near genocidal approach, that we could stop militarily. And there are cases when I think it would be useful even if it wasn't necessarily in our interest. I am, however, far less morally conflicted by arguing for a substantial reduction in what we try to do by the fact that it almost never works. And if I thought we could make Iraq into a thriving democracy, then I would not be as eager as I am to pull our troops out in about an hour, limited only by what it takes physically to get them out. I have to say the concept of non-combat troops is a very dangerous one. If it isn't combat, what the hell are they doing there? There is, of course, another problem, which is that the bad guys don't know that they're non-combat <laughs> And they continue to shoot at them, which puts them in an awkward situation. But they're essentially there to mediate political and religious disputes, which is an entirely inappropriate function for the military. What I'm saying, though, is that my, I am not as morally conflicted as I might be, because it rarely works. It may be possible for a wealthy Western society heavily to intervene in a non-Western, non-white poor society and help them out, but probably not us. Much of what I think is unfair, the anger about America, the jealousies, whatever, we're often the least useful people to go in there. And all we do is make people angrier at us. So the point is that we need to go beyond the current thing. Now, I believe people here, and I'll take some credit and, and others, I take some credit for the fact that we have now under discussion how to do what we are now doing in the defense area more efficiently, and that is helpful, as opposed to increasing it, as even the president had been talking about a little while ago. We have connected that dot, that you can't talk about reducing the deficit in a rational way without talking about the military. Monopoly money, what we have now through the Federal Reserve, means constant interference with the ability of people to contract credibly and freely. And the Federal Reserve's conflicted dual mandate to deal with both inflation and unemployment is little more than a congressional mandate of good intentions. That's the conclusion of Jerry Jordan, former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. He was the keynote speaker at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference in November. What kind of a euthanasia program do we have for the um, GSEs, for Fannie and Freddie? I don't believe in the whole idea of GSEs, and so we need to adopt a euthanasia program for them. But that's not sufficient. That, to me, would be like cutting weeds without getting at the roots. you got to pull them out. And, of course, we know that the root of the problem is the Community Reinvestment Act. It goes back to the 1970s along with Humphrey Hawkins, it went back to the 1970s. And it was good intentions gone terribly wrong. And even if we kill off these uh, giant weeds, it's gonna shoot, shoot up someplace else if we don't get at those roots and dig them out. And I really don't know whether the, the idea of whether people rent the place they live or own the place they live is any business at all of the federal level of government, or any level of government, but certainly not the federal level. It's not in the Constitution anyway. So for people that think that it's the business of any level of government, what sense does it make for one level of government to encourage the idea of it's good thing for people to own their houses, own the place they live, and somebody else to be constantly jacking up taxes and other costs of owning houses? Now, that doesn't make any sense at all. 
Why do we have, at the federal level, a Department of HUD? It's not the sort of thing that I think belongs there. I think it belongs, that sort of thing that belongs in the states. The Full Employment Balance Growth Act is a source of great mischief. It takes away from the primary focus. Uh, I mentioned in the paper it contributes to a phenomenon of mission creep, which George Will also uses that expression this morning in his paper. And he did not have an advanced copy of my paper, so don't think that that's what it came from. It wasn't me. But the idea of a Congress mandating that uh, a central bank should maintain low unemployment, whatever that means, and then raises the minimum wage. Well, what sense does this make? If it's just a matter of legislating good intentions, why doesn't Congress declare that everyone should earn above the average income? <laughs> Maybe Cato should start up a journal of economic hypocrisy. Telling a central bank to achieve and maintain financial stability takes away from the primary mission of stable money. And so, in that vein, does something called a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It's another mistake of that same type of mission creep, but it's actually even worse than that. They did it because they didn't want Congress to have to appropriate the funds to pay for it. So if reducing reserve bank earnings is, um, which ultimately get turned back over to the Treasury, 100% excess profits tax effectively, if that's a good and clever way to avoid constitutional requirements of congressional appropriation of funds, let's put the school lunch programs in the Federal Reserve Banks. Or how about the transportation, TSA, transportation management? Transportation is important to the payment systems. Let's put TSA in the Federal Reserve Banks. See how popular that is. I bet you can think of some of your own silly ideas of how do we avoid appropriating funds constitutionally by having it just reduce reserve bank earnings that get turned over to the Treasury, a hidden way to tax. I'm not one to defend in the, today's environment, lender of last resort. But if we're going to have a lender of last resort function, then at least let's establish some strict rules for that facility. There are financial inter intermediaries, I believe, that are too big to close. They should be open Monday morning. But they're not too big to fail, to wipe out the equity holders, unsecured creditors, all of the golden parachutes, in fact, bailouts of creditors of both financial and non-financial firms that have access to the safety net, as they now do, I think the idea of bailouts should be banned by law with sanctions for violating that. What we've seen is that politically motivated taxpayer bailouts to certain creditors undermines rule of law and it contributes to regime uncertainty. The greatest threat of all of the financial nonsense is going on, as we saw in Mexico in 1994 and 1995, is you undermine the rule of law. The banking financial crisis of Mexico did come to an end, but 15 years later, they still have not solved the problems of and restored rule of law 
that was severely damaged as a result of that financial problem. We can reprivatize banks, we can uh, fix a lot of things in the financial system, but once you damage um, the underlying rule of law in the economic political system, it's very hard to restore. We also ought to move in the direction of permitting currency competition. Somehow work our way towards the development of the private issuance of media of exchange. And to achieve that end, we're going to have to legislate specific performance. As far as I know, Guatemala is the only country that did that, thanks to uh, Manuel Yao and Francisco Marroquin in 1990. But other countries have not done that. That was the flaw in the Argentine arrangement back in the 90s. They did not legislate specific performance to the extent of the payment of taxes in uh, the dollar and that uh, undermined the ability to sustain that kind of arrangement that they had cooked up. We should have contracts that are denominated in foreign currencies that are enforceable by law, as well as the payments of taxes in an alternative medium. The whole idea of a monopoly money and that aspect of legal tender laws I think inhibits the innovation and, the, and it's inconsistent with the rights of individuals and businesses to enter freely into legally enforceable contracts. I think as a further step to institutionalizing monetary discipline, we should denationalize all gold stocks. Give it back to the people. We stole it from the people fair and square, let's give it back to them. And that would, together with specific performance, would at least allow some evolution towards competition of currencies. Okay, now I'm going to turn back to what is in the text of the paper in the ways that I wrote it, the way I organized it. And I've been seeking for some time to change the conversation that we have about money, not to something new, but to something old. John Stuart Mill wrote, there cannot be intrinsically a more insignificant thing in the economy of society than money except in the character of a contrivance for sparing time and labor. It is a machine for doing quickly and commodiously what would be done, though less quickly and commodiously, without it. And like in many other kinds of machinery, it only exerts a distinct and independent influence of its own when it gets out of order. So I welcome very much the remarks Jim Buchanan made at a Montpelier Society uh, meeting in August of 1990 that's available in the spring 2010 Cato Journal, The Constitutionalization of Money. Jim tells us, quote, the members of the public, all of whom are transactors in money values, must come to trust the value of money as iconically sacrosanct. The whole psychology of money in modern times must become different. Amen. So as we continue to debate these issues of asset bubbles and monetary policies associated with them before and after, we need to have in mind what we use as money and what Jim called the multi, in this multifaceted discourse on financial reform over the post-2009 years. Buchanan concludes, let us not waste this set of crises by exclusive recourse to jerry-built efforts to patch up the failed monetary anarchy we have witnessed. Strong words. Unfortunately, what we have been seeing over the last couple of years, in my mind, is 
too much of the conversation has been about the strategies and tactics for the formulation and implementation of discretionary monetary policies and not near enough on the reform of the monetary arrangements that might assure constant monetary yardstick. For that kind of dialogue to be fruitful, any further discussions about reforms after the next crisis, we're going to have to come together more in some agreement on the objectives of constitutional monetary arrangements. Some of the speakers in last year's Cato Monetary Conference uh, addressed that. There's been some things since then, and I think that we need to continue that kind of a discussion. Some of the discussions also, uh, too much of it in my mind, about these bubbles and post-bubble environments, have not been about preventing them, but as we have seen, an awful lot of it is about afterwards. Hayek had taught the only time to fight recession is during the prior expansion, and a lot of our discussions today will be in that spirit, I'm sure. But so much of the others are talking about the national and international responses, the economic hangover, and how we deal with the post-crisis environment. This how to reduce the pain of hangovers recipes implicitly rejects Hayek, and it prescribes instead a greater latitude for fiscal and monetary activism, policy activism. Even more discretion left economic policymakers to address the aftermath of these bursting bubbles. The most subversive of these suggestions with regard to monetary policies is that in the future, central banks should debase national currencies at a faster rate than had become the common consensus of the 1990s. So now we have people talking about, well, we've decided that we want to shrink the family paycheck but we don't think we're shrinking the family paycheck fast enough. And we ought to work a little harder at eroding purchasing power and debasing currencies at a faster rate. What on earth are they talking about? These people have uh, in mind that there's what they call the zero bound problem. It's quite simply an argument that nominal interest rates incorporate an inflation premium and if we debase the currency at a sufficiently fast rate, then you'll have nominal interest rates. And so that gives greater latitude, a bigger weapon, for confronting the conditions in post-bubble environments. I think that we need to move the dialogue back towards something that makes little sense and resonates better with the American people. I spent some time in the paper talking about what I considered to be the... Uh, faulty diagnosis of this um, environment and my interpretation of what was going on in the bubble environment and these misguided uh, prescriptions as to how to deal with it through this sort of thing that they talk about demand stimulus and all of that that's just missing the point completely. I attribute a lot of what the damage that was done and why it was so severe in the United States in particular to the mortgage equity withdrawals and it has to do with all the things that most of you are familiar with of the ninja loans and the non-recourse lending and we could go on and on and all the component parts of that. But most of the people that talk about these things that I've seen fail to make the very simple point as to why was it so damaging in the United States 
versus Canada or Australia, who had bigger increases in house prices than we did because they're not looking at the other side of the balance sheet. You can have asset bubbles, as we had in the dot-com bubble of the 90s, and more recently other countries had in house prices, without the damage if you don't have the debts associated with what's happening on the asset balance side of the balance sheet. As I've thought about this over the last couple of years, what it really struck me, also as I talked with some people and read some things, is unfortunately in this country you can get a PhD in economics with never having had a single class in accounting. Economists that cannot read a balance sheet or a P&L, it's quite amazing. And so that leads to misdiagnosis and faulty prescriptions. What we wound up with after uh, the period of my home is my ATM and how that came about and the, the household debt side of it, that these misguided policies to maintain a bubble level of household consumption spending through the transfer of the proceeds of the issuance of government debt, massive amounts of it. And so we've replaced, to a large extent, continuing to replace household debt with government debt and creating, in that sense, a different form of a bubble. Fiscal policies have become part of the problem. They are not part of the solution. And monetary policies cannot correct the mistakes made by the rest of government. Instead of greater latitude for discretion, we ought to be moving, and pump priming and all that sort of thing, we ought to be moving towards letting markets start to clear without artificial props and distortions. Ultimately, it's the inherent resiliency of a market economy that is going to get us out of this environment and to restore prosperity, not bubble-nomics. However, I worry that the lack of fiscal discipline undermines confidence that policymakers will maintain monetary discipline. I spend some time talking about the unlegislated tax of inflation, why societies have resorted to that over time, why it's actually very tempting to politicians to do that, why we did it in the Johnson administration in the 60s, the tax no one has to vote for, or at least he thought so, and also the rather cynical resort to the inflation tax as a way to impose real taxation on people that you promised not to raise their taxes, and also the international dimension that people seem to either not understand or willfully ignoring what it does to foreign holders of our currency, of our debt, and imposing a tax without representation onto a whole lot of other people around the world. And I conclude with some remarks about what should be, in my mind, the objectives of future monetary reforms and whether one sides with James Madison or Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln had said that no duty is more imperative on a government than the duty it owes the people of furnishing them with a sound and uniform currency. But Madison had said, it's a challenge of monetary arrangement in spite of government, saying, it cannot be doubted that a paper currency rigidly limited in its quantity to purposes absolutely necessary may be equal and even superior in value to specie. But experience does not favor reliance on such experiments. Whenever the paper has not been convertible into specie and its quantity is dependent on the policy of government, a depreciation has been produced by an undue increase or an apprehension of it. So I interpret James Buchanan as coming down on the side of Madison, saying the Constitution remains the ultimate sovereign authority rather than the government.
some 15 years earlier in another paper, also in Cato Journal, Buchanan cautioned us, it is in the monetary responsibility that almost all constitutions have failed, even those that were allegedly motivated originally by classical liberal precepts. Governments throughout history have almost always moved beyond constitutionally authorized limits in their monetary authority. Can't wait to receive Cato Audio each month? The Cato Institute also produces a daily podcast available for download on our website or iTunes. Our experts and scholars comment on the day's relevant news, and they can help you stay up to date on the latest happenings and research from the Cato Institute. Visit cato.org or iTunes to subscribe today. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.